Thank you, team. I feel very worshipful today. I appreciate that. Welcome back. Last week, we left our hero, David, in a very bad place. If you remember, it was right after he'd made a huge mistake. And if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. We're glad you're here. Thank you for joining us online as well. We're in the middle of a series on the life of David. Now, if you've been part of our community for a little while, or if you grew up as part of another church community, you've already heard of David, right? But you probably think of him as, as King David. But as we've seen, there's a lot more to David's story than simply the fact that he was the king and simply his time being the king. God began to do a good work in David's life while David was just a young boy. And if you remember when we started out, we looked at the story of David and the Philistine giant Goliath. Remember, David was 15 years old during that. Then last week, we looked at his story. David was 22 years old in our story last week. And in that story, David made a horrible decision. And we touched on the fact that one of the things that makes a terrible decision terrible is that those decisions hurt us and other people in our lives. And they hurt us in the short term, but also in the long term. Well, in today's installment, we're going to see David right after this terrible decision. And we're going to see him make another terrible decision, or about to make another terrible decision. And this decision would make his situation go from bad to worse because that's how these things typically work. Things don't get better when you keep on making bad decisions. They get worse. But interestingly, this time, we're going to see how David was saved from himself by a woman. Hmm. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father God, thank you for gathering us again together this morning. Thank you for allowing us to continue studying this ancient text that has so much relevance for us today. God, allow our hearts and minds to be open to receive your word and to be changed by it. We praise you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if any of you men in the room have been saved from yourself by a woman saved from doing something really, really dumb, you'll immediately understand the lesson of this story. I can tell you, it absolutely hit home with me. If I had to pay Beth, my wife, for every time she saved me from myself, from my own inclinations, if I had to pay her for that, I wouldn't be able to afford to be with her. Okay, that sounded weird, but... You, you, you get where I'm going with that, I hope, right? But before we talk about that, I want to start with a biblical teaching with which you're all familiar, and this is the golden rule. Have you heard of the golden rule? You've all heard of the golden rule, right? Here's the golden rule. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Jesus spoke that to us in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 7. Did you realize that that was actually in the Bible? Or did you think maybe Ben Franklin said it? Right? It seems like a Ben Franklin thing, doesn't it? Now, we all love the golden rule. Everybody loves the golden rule until you have to apply the golden rule in your life. We love the golden rule until 
you'd rather not apply the golden rule in your life. It's a tough one. One of my old law partners used to have his version of the golden rule. Here's what his version was. Do to others as they have done to you. Now that feels, that actually feels better, doesn't it? Like, that feels, I don't know, more reasonable, more normal, more, more American. Doesn't that feel more American? There, there, there's something that just makes it seem like, yeah, that's the right thing to do. When you've been mistreated, you should be able to mistreat that person back, right? I mean, there's another facet to this phenomenon, one that's virtually impossible to see in ourselves, but patently obvious to anybody who's paying attention to us. And that's when you've been mistreated by someone that you can't mistreat in return. So what do you do? You take it out on someone else. You mistreat somebody else. Or, or the related phenomenon that occurs when you've been mistreated in an environment and you can't get back in an environment, so what do you do? You find another environment and you mistreat the people there. You're, you're essentially paying your mistreatment forward. I've been mistreated, I'll mistreat other people. That's where we get this expression that hurt people hurt people. Whenever somebody hurts you, it's, instead of getting angry, it's really useful to go, hmm, I wonder why they're being so hurtful. I wonder what makes that person so hurtful. But the phenomenon of living a life of revenge, of living an eye-for-an-eye kind of life, that has some dire consequences. There's a problem when you live an eye-for-an-eye kind of life. There's a problem with our always seeking to get even with anyone and everyone who's ever wronged us. And here's what the problem is. Getting even makes you even. It makes you even with people whom you don't even like. And now ask yourself this question. Why would you want to be even with somebody you don't like? Why would you want to be even with somebody you already think you're better than? Why do you want to sink to their level? Why do you want to be even with somebody that you're already ahead of? You see it, right? When you get even, you're acting just like the person you don't like. And this brings us to part three of our series, the cleverly named series on David that we've named David. All right, I want to begin with a quick summary. So for our story, remember, we've traveled back in time about 3,000 years. And even though it feels like we're going into exquisite detail, we're actually skipping over a ton of stuff. This, this story is so rich and so detailed, and I encourage you to go back and read the whole thing in, in First and Second Samuel in its entirety. But anyway, remember that we first met David when he was 15. He was a 15-year-old boy who killed a giant. And by doing so, David became a viral sensation. Everybody knew who he was. And then we saw him fall a little bit from grace because as a result of him becoming so famous and the adulation of the crowd, the king, King Saul, began to see David as a threat to his power. And kings don't like it when their power is threatened. Remember, David had married one of Saul's daughters and David became best friends with Saul's son. And then Saul just ran him out of town. 
So today we begin with David while he was still on the run, while he was still a fugitive. And he's surrounded by his own men, but he's unwelcome in his own country. And he's trying to avoid Saul, along with trying to avoid the Philistines. So now, come with me, if you would, to the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, to 1 Samuel chapter 25. Again, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up. If you don't have a Bible, I'll put up all the verses on the screens, and we'll read from 1 Samuel 25, verse 2. A certain man in Maon, who had property there at Carmel, was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. Now, I'm going to guess that even though none, none of us are really up on the market value of goats and sheep, is anybody up on the market value of goats and sheep? No, not in Boca. But, but we do know, we can tell for sure that this is a rich man here. A, it says it in the text, and B, that seems like an awful lot of livestock. You, you have to have money to have that kind of livestock. All right, so let's keep learning about this guy. Let's go to verse 3. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. Now, Abigail, she was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was kind of a punk. He was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. So what do we get? Nabal was an unpleasant guy. And, and I often wonder whether the fact that his name was Nabal had something to do with it. Nabal means fool in Hebrew. And you name your kid fool, you're, you're kind of setting the bar really low, right? So, all right. So, hey, fool, you know? Okay. We'll keep on. Verse 4. While David was in the wilderness, remember he's on the run, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, say to Nabal, long life to you. In other words, hey man, God bless you. Good, good for you. Good health to you and your household. And good health to all that is yours. All right, I want to pause for a second for a word on sheeping, sheep shearing, sheep clipping, sheep shaving. Anyway, when I was growing up on the farm... All right. When I researched sheep shearing, I learned that people raised, and they still raise, sheep for their wool. If you're wearing wool today, you can thank a sheep, okay? Every spring, the sheep herders would shave their sheep, would shear their sheep, and they would gather the wool. See, a sheep's wool grows thick, and it grows year-round. If you've ever seen the pictures, they get kind of big and woolly and all that sort of stuff. And at shearing time, that's when the sheep herders find out just how much wool they would have for sale. And as a result, they find out just how rich they're going to be, just how much money they would have for the coming year. So when a shepherd had lots of sheep, they found out at spring shearing time that they had lots of money. Now, in this verse, Nabal's about to find out that he was wealthier than he thought he was, wealthier than expected. And as you can imagine, when you find out you have more money than you thought you had, it's party time, okay? A celebration was in order. So essentially, David tells his guys to go congratulate Nabal on his successful shearing season. So here's the message that David sends Nabal in verse 7. He says, now I hear that it's sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. So through his messengers, David is saying, Hey, Nabal, you had a good year 
because my men protected your shepherds. See, my men could have mistreated your shepherds, but they didn't. And then he says, you don't believe me? Just, look at verse 8, just ask your own servants, they'll tell you. Don't, you don't have to take my word for it. Ask your servants who protected your shepherds, who protected your sheep. So then he says, therefore, be favorable toward my men since we come at a festive time. So that, David's getting ready to make the big ask. Here's what he says. Please give your servants and your son David, so in other words, please pay me whatever you feel is right, whatever you find for them. Given the fact that we were kind to you, given the fact that we protected you and we didn't steal from you, would you be willing to share with us? Kind of a protection racket, okay? So, what happens? Verse 9. David's men give Nabal this message in David's name, and then they wait. They deliver the message, and then they wait for the reply. And then Nabal answered David's servants. And here's what he said. Who is this David? By the way, he knows who David is, okay? Because the next line, who is this son of Jesse? He knows who David is. Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. He's basically saying, who's this David? He's not one to talk. He left his master. He's disloyal. He's an outlaw. This is kind of confusing. But he's saying, he's saying, yeah, I'm familiar with this David guy. He's a troublemaker. He's a fugitive. He's not in the king's favor anymore. He's not anyone I have to listen to anymore. I didn't ask him for his protection, and I owe him nothing. So Nabal continues, verse 11. Why should I take my bread and my water and the meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? Well, David's men turned around and went back. And they went back to David and they told him every word that Nabal had said. Well, that's not what David was expecting. That's not the response David wanted. David wanted them to come back and say, here's a lot of money. Thank you for protecting us. We really appreciate you. It didn't happen. So what happened? So David said to his men, all right, guys, put on your swords. Strap on your swords. So they did. And David put on his sword as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. So here's what's going on. By this time, David had been on the run, avoiding Saul for a long, long time. And instead of living at home like he should have been, or even ascending to a high office, David had been unsettled. He was kind of bouncing from place to place. He's on the run, so he's always looking over his shoulder to see who's following him. It's very unsettling. And as we saw last week, we saw how David considered siding with the enemy. Remember that story? He went to the enemy and then he thought better of it and acted like he's a crazy person, so the enemy kicked him out. He wasn't able to be recognized as the hero that he was, and that frustrated David. Even David's own people didn't accept him as a son, and David was growing tired, and he was growing impatient. And, and when you think about it, it looks a lot like what we just talked about. David was frustrated and tired and isolated and worn down, so he lashed out. Hurt people hurt people. He lashed out at Nabal. He told his men, fellas, Let's give these guys the what for hurt people. 
hurt people. So David strapped on his sword, and he began to look for Nabal to pay him back for his refusal to cooperate. David began to do the very same thing that we always do when he did this. He began to justify what he was about to do. He was justifying the bad actions he was about to take. He was trying to convince himself. He was trying to rationalize. Don't we, you know what we always say about rationalizing? You're telling yourself rational lies. He was rationalizing that he should be doing the thing that he was getting ready to do, go in there with swords and cut off some heads. We all do that, don't we? We all talk ourselves into doing things that we really ought not to do. Well, we're about to see a snapshot of what was going on in David's mind as he did so. But first, a little, little sidebar here, verse 14. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. The servant was an eyewitness to the entire exchange, and the servant explained what had happened to Nabal's wife, Abigail, and the servant continued to fill her in. In verse 15, yet these men were very good to us. David's men were very good to us. They didn't mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the field near them, nothing was missing. They didn't steal anything. Night and day, there were a wall around us, the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. So the servant's saying, listen, Abby, they're on a first name basis, Abby, David's servants were telling the truth. They very deferentially, very politely, they, they didn't come in blustery and, and rude, they came in politely and deferentially. They explained the service that they had provided and they asked Nabal politely if they could share in the extra that he had and so the servant said to Abigail, if you would, please think it over and see what you can do. Because this disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. The disaster, there are a bunch of guys with swords who are really angry or getting ready to come in and kill a lot of people. Nabal, talking about Nabal now, he is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Now, after hearing this, Abigail, being a very smart lady, she knew what to do. She acted very quickly. So here's what she did. She, on her own, took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sayas of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them onto donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead. I'll follow you. But she didn't tell her husband. She didn't tell Nabal what she was doing. Given his personality, that was a good call. Verse 20. As she came riding her donkey into the mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. So, okay, get it? She's got this, all this stuff that she's going to deliver to David's men. She goes up into a ravine. She looks up at the hills, and all David's men are descending down upon her with all these swords. They're heading through the valley where the sheep are being sheared, and Abigail sees them coming. They were armed, and they were ready to fight. This was about to go down, and Abigail met them on their way. So now we find out exactly what's on David's mind. David's anger at Nabal for being cheap with him, for not honoring him, his anger had built up to the point of explosion. David and his men had walked a long way, and they were running from the law, and he was getting angrier and angrier and more and more resolved to do something drastic. A lot of people were about to die that day, and here's what David said verse 21. It's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing, he has paid me back evil 
for good. I did so much for this guy, and this is how he repays me. Well, I'm going to give him what he deserves. Verse 22, may God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave one, I'll leave alive one male of all who belong to him. In other words, he said, God help me. I'm going to kill every single one of them. Now watch what happened next. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and she bowed down before David with her face to the ground. Now I want you to know this is a thing. Abigail was the wife of a very wealthy man. She did not go around bowing down to many people, especially to a fugitive like David. And David was taken by surprise. But Abigail was smart. See, she knew. Abigail knew how to get to David, how to change David's intentions. So she treated David not as he was, not as a fugitive, not as a man running from King Saul, not as a person on the outs, but she treated him as the man she hoped he would one day become. Now, by the way, ladies, men have always been and continue to be suckers for this kind of persuasion, okay? Ladies, if you just make your men feel needed, capable, and strong, there is legitimately nothing we won't do for you. Nothing. You see that play out all the time if you're anything like we are. You're at home and you're getting ready to go to sleep and your wife says to you, Ooh, did I just hear something outside? Could you go take a look for me, please? And you're thinking, hmm, hmm, hmm. I will be the protector. Of course I will. Think about how crazy that is, really. Like, you don't know what's out there. You could die. But you don't care. You'll do it. Because you felt needed, capable, and strong. That's, that's the way we're wired. Well, Abigail knew that. And Abigail saved the day. Abigail began to speak not to David the outlaw fugitive, but to David as he could one day be, the benevolent king of Israel. So, 20, verse 24, she fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Now, by the way, at that moment in time, Abigail was absolutely positively not David's servant, but she showed him complete respect, complete deference. Now, by the way, don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting you do that, okay? I'm not suggesting you bow down. I'm not saying this is the exact approach that we should use in our day and age. We're a little bit different than they were. But the principle, in principle, spot on. Abigail continued. Please pay no attention, my lord, to that wicked, she's talking about her husband, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. He's aptly named. His name means fool. And folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. So she says, listen, Nabal, he's a fool, just like his name implies. Just ignore Nabal. She continues, verse 26. Since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, I want you to stop here. Do you see what she just did? She took a look at this horde. There are 400 warriors with swords that she saw. They were hungry for blood, and she compliments all of them on their restraint. All these guys are, they're going to kill somebody. She says, you guys are so good that you didn't kill anybody. The Lord had not yet 
kept them from avenging themselves with bloodshed, but she spoke into it as if it already happened. These are not the droids you're looking for. Oh, these are not the droids I'm looking for. And she kept going. May your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. Abigail spoke to David as if he'd already chosen to show a very noble restraint. He hadn't chosen it yet, but she spoke it into existence. She spoke it into being. She was giving him credit for something he hadn't done yet. Verse 28, please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord. So in order to dissuade David from making a colossal mistake, Abigail spoke to David's future as a great king. She said, David, Because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. David, God is doing a great work in you and we all know it. God has a great plan for your life. You fight for the Lord. You are not a wrongdoer. You're not the kind of person who would butcher all these people because you're a little bit upset. Now you have to imagine David was standing there and he's kind of like mouth open, slack jawed, listening to this woman saying all these edifying, these building up things, these encouraging things to him. And she kept going. Verse 29. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, she's still talking to David. David, even though someone's pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. Even though Saul's trying to hunt you down, everybody knew Saul was hunting David, you needn't worry because you will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. And when I say that, we all get together and we go, huh? Like, what does that even mean? Isn't that a weird way of saying something? Well, here's what it means. This is how you would talk about keeping your money in a wallet or a purse. To keep your money secure, you would take it, put it in the wallet and purse, then you'd wrap cords around it. I know some of you guys out there with wallets you've had since high school, and they're falling apart and stuff, and you have rubber bands around it and stuff like that. Don't put your hand up if you do. Just go on Amazon and buy a new wallet, please. But that's how you secure it, right? And that's what they did back then. And then you take the whole thing and you tuck it in your, in your belt, you know, keep it safe. So Abigail's telling David, even though Saul is trying to steal your life, David, you don't have to worry because God's going to keep you tucked away and secure. <laughs> Abigail wasn't done yet. She kept going. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. You see it? You see the language she used? She took David back to his finest moment. She took David back to when he was 15, and he defeated Goliath with that sling, to the time when David was fully dependent on God, and he didn't have to try to fix everything and avenge everything himself. So from there, she leads David to look at his future. Now, for some of you, this might be the point of today's message. So here we go. Without explicitly asking, Abigail asked David, What story is it that you want to tell when this is nothing but a story that you will tell? We all do this in life. We have these moments, and we do something, and it's over, and then it becomes a story we tell. And if you're a storyteller, you remember all these things, and you go back to them, and you look at all the things you've done, and now you're just telling the story. Here's how she asked it. She said, when. When. Not if. When. 
When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord, so when God has fulfilled for you, David, every good thing he promised concerning you, David, and has appointed David the ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience, David, you won't have on your conscience, the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, Remember your servant. When God fulfills all of his promises to you, David, and when God makes you king, you won't have a guilty conscience because you unnecessarily shed blood. Now, that was absolutely brilliant on Abigail's part. Abigail's persuasion ended up working. David kind of began to <sighs> chill out a bit. His anger, temperature kind of came down, and he started to see the situation differently. And here's what he says back to Abigail. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. I am so glad I met you today, Abigail, before I did something really stupid. You just saved me from a huge mistake. David continued, may you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. He was going to kill every single one of them. Abby, you saved a lot of lives today. And then David accepted her, accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, so she took the gifts that she brought and said, go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. Because of you, Abigail, none of your people are going to die by my hand today. Now look how the story ends. This is pretty amazing. When Abigail went to Nabal, she finally went to Nabal. He was in the house. Remember I told you they were partying because he had so much money? They were holding a banquet. And the banquet was so big, it was like, like the banquet a king would hold. And he was in high spirits, and he was very drunk. So she didn't say anything to him. Another wise thing. She comes home. He's having this huge party, drunk as can be. He's hammered. She says, you know what? Mm, this is probably not the best time to talk to him about what I've done. So she waits till the next day when he's sobered up. Verse 37. In the morning when Nabal was sober. Isn't it cool that this stuff is in the Bible like this? His wife, Abigail, told Nabal all these things. And what happened to Ball? <laughs> His heart failed him and he became like a stone. <clears throat> heart attack, drops. Ten days later, he dies. The Lord struck Nabal dead. And then, this is so cool, you've got to love what God does here. And then, David sent word to Abigail and said, hey, let's get married. How cool is that? Like she came along. She saved him. He did this great thing. Nabal, he's out of there. God kills him. Don't you love that? Verse 42, Abigail quickly got on a donkey and attended by her five female servants, went with David's messengers and became his wife. Now, things get really weird after this, but I'm going to stop here. And I'm going to ask, please read this story on your own. It is a great story, so it gets really strange, though. But I want to tell you where we are now. In today's story, we've seen three main characters who took three different approaches, but there's only one hero in this story. Let's take a look. 
The first approach was taken by Nabal. What did he do? Nabal returned evil for good. David took care of Nabal's sheep, and Nabal didn't want to reciprocate. Okay, so that's what Nabal did. Then there was David. David was about to return evil for evil, okay? He had been wronged. He was going to go back and wrong somebody else. But finally, there was Abigail. Abigail went against human nature. Abigail returned good for evil. So what can we learn from all of that? Well, with Nabal, it's pretty straightforward, the things we can learn. Don't be like Nabal. Okay, just don't be like Nabal. Nobody wants to be like Nabal. As his name suggested, he really was a knucklehead. Okay, do not be like Nabal. Then there was David. And David behaved the way that we all like to behave, the way that we're all naturally inclined to behave. Do unto others as they do unto you. But Abigail, she, Abigail, was just remarkable. Her her response was remarkable. Her judgment was remarkable. Her approach was remarkable. And that's what this story is about. This story is about just how remarkable Abigail was. And when you stop and think about it, Abigail, she was way ahead of her time. Because this story took place 1,000 years before Jesus. At that time, Jewish law did provide for a retributive justice. The law provided for retribution. In the Torah, remember the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible? This is what we read in Leviticus 24. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. The one who has inflicted injury must suffer the same injury. That's retribution. And that's where David was heading until Abigail came along. Abigail was ahead of her time. Because even though we as modern, sophisticated folks look at David's plan response and think, um, come on, David, that's a little extreme, don't you think? That's not how his men reacted. When his men heard that they got to kill a bunch of people for disrespecting, they were all for it. Because that's the world they lived in. But Abigail's response looked a lot more like something that would happen about a thousand years in the future from her. See, in the first century A.D., the Apostle Peter, the same Apostle Peter who was one of Jesus' followers, who saw the innocent, sinless Jesus unjustly arrested, unjustly crucified, he's the same Peter that saw that but heard Jesus while he was bleeding and dying on a Roman cross cry out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That Peter, that same guy who saw that, wrote these words to believers in the first century who were being unjustly treated. And Peter sounded nothing at all like David sounded. Here's what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessings because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing yourself. Repay evil with blessing. Repay evil with good. Whenever you're mistreated, don't just be neutral. Don't just ignore it. Be positive and give blessing. That's what Jesus modeled. That's what Peter taught. And that's what Abigail did a thousand years earlier. And that's the thing to which we're called. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's what we're called to do. And this shouldn't come as any surprise. 
we should expect to be mistreated. Let me say that again. We should expect to be mistreated. When we read the news and we see how people are persecuting Christians or saying nasty things about Christians, we go, oh, that's so horrible. We should expect to be mistreated. That's what they did to our Lord. How could we escape the same fate? How else would we expect to be treated? But when we respond this way, in the way that Abigail responded, in the way that Peter talked about responding, we will inherit a blessing. Now, I want you to look at this. We're almost done. You know why I mentioned Peter here? Because in that first century AD, Peter was quoting someone. He was quoting King David from a thousand years earlier. During the time of David's life when he was reflecting on all the things he'd done, he was older by this point. He was reflecting on the things he'd done and the lessons he'd learned in his younger years. And by that time, David's mindset had matured and had, had refocused on what lay ahead. And here's what Peter quoted from David's Psalm 34. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. See, Peter was writing to the Jesus followers who were being mistreated for their faith. And where did Peter get this crazy idea? We got it from Jesus. Back to the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. We have heard it said, I just read it to you. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to them. You have heard that it was said, love your, enemy and hate your, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, in David's world, retribution was the way to go. But Jesus turned it around. He turned it on his head. He flipped the script. And as Jesus' followers, as people who have prayed, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. I want to turn from my sins. I want to turn to you. I want to follow you as the Lord and leader of my life. As one of Jesus' people, we are not called to respond the way the world responds. We're called to respond differently, to be like Jesus. We need to go the other way entirely. So as we wrap up today, I want to leave everyone with three questions. And the first question is this. Do you really want to be even with someone you don't even like? Like, do you want that? Who wants that? You don't. To get even with somebody you like means that you're like. Somebody you don't like means that you're like somebody you don't like. You don't want to be like somebody you don't like. Why would you try to do what they do? Why would you act like they act? You don't want to do that. Wouldn't it be better instead of being even to be ahead? And do you know how to pull ahead? You pull ahead by refusing to get even. All right, second question. What story do you want to tell? David was about to ride headlong into a situation from which there would be no turning back, a situation that would haunt him for the rest of his days. But Abigail stopped him, and she spoke to his future, and she said, do you really want this on your conscience? Is this really the story you want to tell? And we should all ask ourselves the same question. Is this the story I want to tell in the future? We should ask at every juncture in our lives, every time we have this opportunity to do the right or the wrong thing. Because every event in your life eventually becomes a part of the story of your life. What story do you want to tell when it's nothing other than a story that you tell? Do you really want your story to be an I got even? 
And I became just like those people I don't like. All right, third question, final question. What would it look like to return good for evil? What would it look like for you to be a blessing to somebody who's hurt you? What would it look like for you to be a blessing to someone who's offended you? Not to just do nothing, not to just ignore them and not take retribution, but to be proactive, to actually do something. To do nothing, you know what we call that? We call that mercy. Here's what you deserve, but I'm not going to give you what you deserve. That's mercy. But to actually do something that they don't deserve, that is grace. And that's what we're called to show. That's what we're called to be all about. We're called to be people of grace. And we're called to be people of grace because that's what our God is all about. God returned good for evil. God gave his son for our sin. That's the gospel message. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that's your story. That's my story. Returning good for evil is not normal. Returning good for evil is not expected. Returning good for evil takes you from predictable to remarkable. That means it's something to remark about. Returning good for evil sets you apart. And returning good for evil sets you free. Because until you return good for evil, the person who's mistreated you controls you. They control your mind. They control your thoughts. They control your dreams. And here's how you know. Because you're like David, headed down into that ravine, just going over all the stuff you're going to do to those people in your head and all the ways you're going to get back at them. And the only way you're ever going to get free of that kind of thinking is to purposefully do for someone exactly what they do not deserve for you to do, just like your Father in heaven. So here's what God would tell us to do. He'd say, don't settle for even. Don't settle for predictable. Strive for remarkable. Do for others what they don't deserve. And when you do, you'll be on your way to becoming more and more like your Father in heaven. Now that's what we've been called to do. So what do you think that would look like in your life? to return good for evil all the time. To quote my preaching mentor, Steve Brown, you think about that. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father God, we thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for returning the evil we've shown with your goodness and your grace. God, allow us to do likewise. Allow us to be a people who return grace, who return blessing, who return goodness, no matter what comes our way. God, we know it's a, it's a high bar, but we also know you're an awesome God. God, strengthen us and keep us focused on you. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.